Hello, my name is Austin Habish, the founder of Think Catholic, your source for Catholic thought with both depth and devotion, and I'd like to thank you for joining us. Joining me is Dr. Alan Fimister. Hello. As we dare discuss what is often a very controversial topic, the relationship between church and state. Now, Doc, you have a degree in law. You've published a manual on political philosophy titled Integralism. And so to kick us off, I would like to cite one of the magisterial documents that you actually quote in the book. So this is from Vatican II's Declaration on Religious Freedom titled Dignitatis Humanae. Quote, Religious freedom, in turn, which men demand as necessary to fulfill their duty to worship God, has to do with immunity from coercion in civil society. Therefore, it leaves untouched traditional Catholic doctrine on the moral duty of men and societies toward the true religion and toward the one church of Christ, end quote. And all and of all the magisterial excerpts you utilize in your book, Doc, I would say that this line from Dignitatis Humanae is one of my favorites because it dispels at the beginning the fear people often have that a relationship between church and state would result in people being forced to faith, which is condemned in that first sentence, while at the same time reminding man and society of the very real moral obligation to search out and follow the true religion. Now, there are a lot of questions uh, surrounding this topic, and I'd like to bring up many of them. But first, I have to say, I hear all the time at the door, people telling me religion needs to stay out of politics, that they have nothing to do uh, with one another. Yet, as you point out in your book, politics is actually actually falls under ethics. So right and wrong, just, unjust, policy, interpretation, execution of that policy for the polis, which is the Greek word for the city. And if there is anything that the church has the competence, the right, and the obligation to speak to, it is ethics. Doc, what are your thoughts? Yes. um, And I mean, people are generally unimpressed with the immorality and hypocrisy of their politicians. So in that sense, they don't really want um, religion out of politics, unless, of course, they're atheists, in which case, obviously, they would naturally want religion out of politics because they wouldn't think that ethics have anything has anything to do with religion. But if they are theists, which by reason they should be, um, because the existence of God is demonstrable by natural reason, mm-hmm. as uh, the First Vatican Council defined, um, then uh, necessarily there is an intersection of religious and religion and politics. And in fact, uh, one of the things that people, one of the sort of the great ironies and confusions surrounding this question arises from the fact that the whole idea of a distinction between religion and politics or church and state is a distinctly Christian idea. It's based on divine revelation. It's not derived from natural reason. It's not something which would have been understood by um, the pagans and the non-believers before uh, the triumph of Christianity 
in the late antique period. Um, and this distinctively Christian and revealed concept is being used ironically by non-believers and skeptics and rationalists in order to justify the exclusion of Christian revelation from political questions, when in fact it's the quite, quite the opposite of a rationalistic claim. It's, it's something derived completely from Christian revelation. So it's what's being received from Christianity is now being used against Christianity to, to drive as much as possible religion out of the political scene. And Doc, as we get into these questions, and I look forward to speaking to that point you made just there uh, in more detail, I think it's important for those listening that we lay some of the fundamentals down, which means starting with the origin story. So if we wind the tape back, starting with the first origin story, just speaking of the state, Doc, where would you say the state arises from? Is it, is it natural or is it artificial to man? And then what, what is its purpose? Yes, yeah, so that this is very important, and it, it is one of the fundamental misconceptions which obscures this question. According to classical philosophy, which the Church broadly accepts, and, and in fact the Fathers and later Magisterium teach was prepared by Providence to assist in the propagation of divine revelation, man is a, a social and political animal. So, so society and law-based political society, the polis, as you mentioned, is is part of man's nature. It's where man naturally lives. It's how naturally he achieves virtue and perfection. It's not a product of human choice. It's not an artifact. One of the defining errors of the modern period has been the idea, completely contrary to common sense, that man is naturally isolated, an individual, um, even though this clearly can't be true. I mean, we all have belly buttons and reproductive organs and uh, parents. And uh, so it's clear that we are we're derived, we, we come into this world totally unequipped to survive without the assistance of a pre-existing human society. And, um, and we're unable to even learn language without, without um, the existence of a human society and all of our impulses drive us towards social life and existence. Um, so it's clear that, that man is made not just to create a society, which he does, he's made to already exist in society when he comes into existence in the first place. So the, so the, a complete human society, one that has everything necessary in it for the f survival and flourishing of human nature is something which is natural to man just as the family is natural to man so the polis the city is natural to man the, the family is not powerful enough or complete enough to compose the the the, the all sufficient society for human nature you can't you can't marry other members of your family otherwise everyone ends up with 12 twin 12 <laughs> chins and two yeah. noses um and um and you um and and if you try and survive just on the resources of your family, you'll be very, very lucky to pull it off for any length of time um so so the family is as it were the most immediate and and most natural society to man, but there has to be a larger society in the context of which 
other families are founded, marriages are contracted, et cetera, et cetera, and the resources necessary for the, uh, for the successful uh, continuation of human life and perfection of human nature exist. And that's, that's what is classically called the city or the polis. Nowadays gets called the state mm. to some extent. Doc, would you be willing to contrast this state arising from the demands of nature made upon man to Rousseau's social contract? So something something very different than what you've just articulated there. Yes. So so although Rousseau's not the only or the earliest exponent of this error, but he is one of the most famous. Um, so um, yes, uh, that many modern thinkers have this idea that man is naturally a solitary being in in complete defiance of those facts we just went through, um, and that he sort of these these sort of isolated individuals kind of congregate and decide reluctantly to create a uh, uh, an overarching authority, um, a larger society in order to achieve various goals or protect themselves from each other. It depends some um, depends which of the early modern thinkers you're you're going to. Um, and uh, and so so you have a very marked contrast between the classical and the and the Christian idea and this modern idea because according to the classical Christian idea, human nature is the origin of 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 civil society and therefore uh, the natural law, the moral law that we know by reason, is built into the the structure, the DNA of of civil society, and the authorities in that society are limited by those natural principles of the moral law. And if they transgress them, then they they lose their authority in that area. If they try and make you do something immoral or, or whatever it happens to be, um, whereas the early modern thinkers, they don't think that that the authority of the civil order comes from nature and therefore from God. They think that it comes from an agreement, a contract between these isolated individuals. And that sounds lovely and democratic, but actually it has exactly the opposite effect. Um, because in the classical and Christian idea, because man is naturally a member of the polis, and the polis exists in order to allow him to live the most human life, then it's natural and appropriate for him to participate in politics um, and, 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 and you know, share in the direction and government of the society in which he lives in accordance with his ability to do so. Whereas um, for the contractualists, the moderns, um, there is a sort of a supposed agreement, but it's a kind of mythical agreement that never really happened, that lies at the foundation of this, of the, of this arrangement between these naturally isolated individuals. And this agreement, because the, the body that the, the they create has to have authority over everybody in, in the society in order for the society to even exist, it's an unlimited agreement. Man agrees in advance to everything that the state does, and therefore he has there's no moral limits on on the uh, on the power of the state, and there isn't really any need for democracy because once some um, or republicanism or participatory government, because you've the the democratic element is mythical, it, it occurs off camera in this non-existent. Mm primitive state when everyone made the agreement and now there's just the omnipotent state created by the social contract what thomas hobbes called the leviathan um the monster that nothing on earth can resist the mortal god he also called it. it's terrifying but uh, it's appropriately terrifying because that's what stands at the 
root of all the horrible modern totalitarian regimes. All these, you know, it's, it's usually a bad sign if the name of a country has the word democratic or peoples included in it. That usually <laughs> means it's a monstrous tyranny. <laughs> and um, and that's, that's because it's derived from this this evil poison strand of modern thought that's based on the idea of man as the naturally isolated individual. I think it's interesting. You contrast in your book, uh, let's take the society of the chess club versus the society of the state. So in your chess club, it would be more like the social contract. You know, we get together, we determine, you know, who's going to run it and, and we, uh, we allow them to do X things and we can revoke those at any moment, but the state is, is different in that it's demanded by nature or, or the fulfillment of humankind will lead to something like the state. And so the authority of the one at the head of the state derives his authority from nature. So it's, it's odd as you, as you speak there that the social contract, is it the arbitrariness of the authority which uh, allows it to be this Leviathan? Because it, it looks like almost abstractly considered that the state that arises out of natural law would have a more binding authority. But I guess at the same time, it would be checked by natural law. While you're, you're pointing out here, the social contract would lead to this limitless, boundless, uh, you know, unchecked a power. Yeah, that's right. So, so because there's no, there's no, nat, there's no natural law that there's no human nature impelling or, or, or pre-establishing society. So these, so the, um, so the only laws which really bind are the, are the, the laws created by the entity brought about by the social contract. Um, and that means that you can't have any kind of independent standard by which to judge the legitimacy or illegitimacy of its actions once the final tribunal uh, constituted within that state has judged that its actions are legitimate, then that's it. They simply are legitimate by the nature of the case. Hmm. There's nothing external to the Leviathan which man can appeal to. Um, and so he's... Um, He's completely powerless yeah. before it, which is why Hobbes calls it the Leviathan. The first French Republic used to have on its banners the slogan, La République, une indivisible de liberté, égalité, fraternité, ou mort. The one and indivisible republic of liberty, equality, fraternity, or death. Oh, uh, wow. <laughs> so basically it means, you know, the people's it's our republic. way or the highway. Yep. Uh, thank and you. They okay. duly killed 350,000 of their own citizens, as well as initiating 25 years of war in which millions of other people died. Wow. Yeah. God rest their souls. Uh, very well said, Doc. Uh, our second origin story, the origin of the church then. Now, we, as you know, uh, we, we have a whole episode dedicated to the church's actual genesis in time, you know, founded by our Lord. But I would ask, if the state exists, then is the state sufficient? Is the church then become superfluous for fulfillment or beatitude, or is the church something necessary? Well, um, originally, there wouldn't have needed to be three distinct necessary societies of family, state, and church. There would have only been one society, because... Um, in Eden, man possessed, uh, he possessed 
sanctifying grace, um, that, that which the church gives us through the sacrament of baptism. And he possessed the preternatural gifts, uh, which preserved him from injury and aging and disease. Um, and those were transmitted by natural generation. These were gifts of God. They're, they're not um, they're not owed to human nature, um, but 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 God created man with those gifts, and then they were passed on by natural generation. Um, and so there was no need for uh, you know as I was mentioned before man wouldn't have been able to man isn't able to survive for any length of time with only the resources of a single family but that wouldn't have been true in the state of original righteousness um and uh man would have been able to survive with the resources of of a single family um and uh, and me, the the human family itself would have been the source of um uh would have been the source of, of, of divine life in the soul. Well, God would have been the source, but it would have been transmitted simply in virtue of human nature through being part of the mystical body of Adam. Um, and, and that, of course, uh, was lost through original sin. And that is the source of the distinction between those three societies. Um, we now obtain sanctifying grace through incorporation into the mystical body of Christ through the sacraments and our resources uh, are insufficient to provide for ourselves in the context of a single family and therefore where the family's capacities run out uh, the competence of the state begins so the state is, is a distinct there would have been a what they call a formal distinction between those three societies in eden as it were um, man but for different reasons would have had sanctifying grace um, uh, um, Adam would have been lawgiver of the human race for a different reason for which he was the husband of Eve and, and the father of Cain and Abel and Seth but nevertheless he uh, they would have materially been the same society and then they became distinct societies as a result of uh, of original sin and that's why they are they're distinct from each other and and of course I mean all this doesn't sound very philosophical at all it sounds highly theological but that, that's the point I was making at the beginning, that, that the idea of a distinction between uh, church and state is, is based on Christian revelation. It's not based on natural reason. If you had natural reason alone to work with, as the, the pagans of uh, the pre-Christian period did, you would just know that God existed by natural reason. You would know the natural law by natural reason. You would know that it was the obligation of man to worship God in the manner God has appointed, um, you would know that man is naturally a social political animal, so you would know that the polis has the same moral obligations as the individual and the family, and so the head of the polis would be the high priest of the religion of that society, just as the Roman emperors were the were the high priests of, of the Roman Republic. The Roman emperor was the Pontifex Maximus, the title which was surrendered by Theodosius to the Pope when Catholicism became the official, the Emperor Theodosius, when Catholicism became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. But that's because the Roman Empire was recognizing these distinctions, which we know about through revelation and not through natural reason. And Doc, you speak to the, the practical advantage of separating the leadership of the church from the leadership of the state. I don't know if you could speak to that here just uh well, some of the points you make in the book one of them would be to emphasize 
these, you know, the natural end of mankind and then that beatific end, which is revealed from religion, uh, you know, from uh, revelation, but then also maybe just fallen man that maybe power would be concentrated to too great of an extent. So the humility of the leaders of the state, the humility, excuse me, of the leaders within the church, if you want to speak to that, Doc. Certainly, yes. So, so the um, the reason why they can't coincide, uh, that they can in themselves coincide, so long as the person holding the highest authority in regard to divine revelation and the worship of God, and in regard to the temporal perfection of man, because that's the two different ends of the church and the state. The state exists to to bring man to the perfection proportionate to his nature. Um, the perfection which he would have in a world in which supernatural perfection, which heaven, the the basic vision was not available um, uh, just because God hadn't chosen to grant it. In such a world, the only society of man would be the natural polis. And uh, that can't be held, the, the supreme power over that could be held by the same person as, as the high priest, as it were, the one who brings man to his supernatural perfection, so long as the high priest is absolutely morally perfect. That's the, the priesthood of the order of Melchizedek. That's why Christ is both priest and king, because, because he, is, he is without sin, uh, and he is, as the God-man, able to bring us to supernatural perfection so so he can be both priest and king but he doesn't by baptism bring the members of his mystical body immediately to moral perfection Mm -hmm. partly because he wants them to merit uh on the way to attaining moral perfection through suffering um in imitation of his suffering and so um and so it's not safe for um, for Christians, morally imperfect Christians, ransomed sinners, to hold both of those powers simultaneously. And the reason why is because of the the the, the first heresy, uh, simony, um, the desire, the heresy of Simon Magus, Simon the magician in the Acts of the Apostles, the desire to buy spiritual goods or sell spiritual goods. So the the temptation to use spiritual goods for temporal benefit or to obtain spiritual goods but at a at a temporal earthly price would be so great and overwhelming that it would corrupt either the king who who acted as a priest or the priest who acted as a king and that's why just like moses and aaron um you have to have constantine and sylvester you have to uh, sinful man uh, cannot wield both swords simultaneously. Mm-hmm. There's a f- famous passage in the in Luke's Gospel that the Acts of the Apostles, where our Lord tells the apostles that that now, since the Last Supper, since His ordination of them to the episcopate, um, they are going to have to sell their cloak and buy buy a sword, yeah. and uh, and and and. The apostles say, "Lord, here are two swords," and he says, "It is enough." And uh, it's actually one of the rare passages where the infallible magisterium of the church has defined the meaning of the text. Hmm. Um, uh, Pope Boniface VIII in 1302, in the Bull Unam Sanctam, defined that this referred to the spiritual and temporal powers, and that um, and when our Lord tells Saint Peter 
to put up thy sword into thy scabbard in the Garden of Gethsemane. He rebukes him for chopping off Malchus's ear. Mm -hmm. uh, he's saying simultaneously that the that it is Peter's sword that is that ultimately the person who has responsibility for the highest human good for the supernatural end of man for for attaining heaven does in a sense possess the temporal sword because he says put up thy sword into thy scabbard but he's forbidden to use it because he's told to put it back in the scabbard mm. and that's because um the one who has guardianship of moral right and wrong must ultimately judge over um the the merely technical questions of politics if they stray into immor immorality but because he is a weak and sinful man, as St. Peter famously was, he isn't permitted to himself wield uh, that, that power of, of, of temporal coercion. And so he's told to put the sword away. I, I think this is a really important point. So having gone over some of the, the origin, the origin of the state, the origin of the church, uh, we've spoken to its reality post-fall. Now we're speaking here to the relationship between the two. And the question of societies, what is a perfect society? Is both the church and the state a perfect society, or does one or are they ordered to one another in more of a hierarchical fashion? Uh, here's what Catholic Answers has to say. Quote, the church and the state are both perfect societies. That is to say, each essentially aiming at a common good commensurate with the need of mankind at large, an ultimate and a generic kind of life, and each juridically competent to provide all the necessary and sufficient means thereto. End quote. How would you respond uh, to that, Doug? Well, um, that is true in a sense. So, um, so the, uh, the, the a perfect society meaning a society which is sufficient for all the needs of human nature um, is defined in um, in by Pius XI in Divini Ilius Magistri, marvellous encyclical. He defines it as um, a society which possesses within itself all the necessary means for the attainment of its end. That's why it's a perfect society. So, and as we said, the end of, of the state is... Um, is the attainment of, of, of the perfection proportionate to human nature. And the end of the church is the attainment of the supernatural end of, of the, the unmediated intellectual apprehension of the divine essence, um, the highest possible good that can ever be attained by any intellectual creature, and which God has chosen freely to offer us in this order of providence. Um, and now, but those two ends interrelate to each other uh, for a number of reasons. One is that uh, in order to attain the end proportionate to man's nature, the, the end of the state, you have to uh, worship God in the manner he has appointed because all natural goods of man are derived from the author of nature, God. And uh, the existence of God is certainly knowable by natural reason. And as we've discussed, man is a, is a social and political animal. So, so man's polis, the, the natural society of the state, uh, stands before God with the same moral obligations as the individual. And in order to attain the goods which it seeks, it needs to worship him. And it can't invent for itself a form of worship suiting its fancy, as mm -hmm. the 13th says. It has to worship him in the manner he has appointed because God is 
knowable by reason, but as the unknown God. We, we know him by reason, but we know that he isn't, that his nature can't be known by us. Mm-hmm. And so, so he has to appoint for us uh, the, the, main, the means by which, um, by which he should be worshipped. Um, and, uh, and so we, um, so in order to attain the end proportionate to man's nature, uh, the state has to worship God in a way acceptable to him. Um, this is very beautifully put by um, the, uh, just trying to find the text, um, uh, by uh, the first president of the United States, George Washington, um, in his uh, Thanksgiving declaration of, uh, 19, of 1789 uh, by the President of the United States of America, a proclamation, whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favour, and whereas both Houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favours of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, therefore, I do recommend on a signed Thursday, the 26th of November next, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation, for the signal and manifold mercies and favourable interpositions of providence experienced in the course and conclusion of the late war, and for the great degree of tranquillity, union and plenty which you have since enjoyed. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is very eloquently put by Washington, the, the, the duty knowable by natural reason uh, incumbent upon all nations to uh, render thanksgiving to God and uh, to ask him for to forgive our transgressions he, he goes on to say um now but but we can't know the means of doing that by natural reason and we can know by natural reason that we can't know the means mm-hmm. of doing it by mm-hmm. natural reason so we need revelation to assist us now now again by reason alone you would think that once we discovered that we that you know washington would then get on his priestly garb and offer sacrifice Mm. on behalf of the people of the United States. Mm. But instead we discover that because of man's fallen condition and because of the surpassing glory of the end, which God has established for us, it isn't safe or permissible for the person who is at the head of public affairs to be the one who offers sacrifice. It has to be somebody else. Mm. Um, And therefore uh, we come to know that there is a, a simultaneous society constituted to attain to man's supernatural spiritual end and this is the church um so but the church possesses within itself all the necessary means for the attainment of that end and that includes um uh that uh, man should be able to live peaceably and attain to the end proportionate to his nature so so the church and the state overlap as it were the medieval popes used to compare the temporal and the spiritual power to the sun and the moon Mm. because uh, because the sun has light in and of itself because the church can survive as a truly perfect society even without the state Um, but the state derives its light it exists independently of the church just like the moon does independently of the sun but it derives its light 
from the it only truly illuminates man's path mm-hmm. when it's properly Directed. aligned yeah. yes to the um to the church or to the spiritual power and and this is what our lord means in the sermon well it's, it's one aspect of what our lord means in the sermon of the mount when he says seek ye first the kingdom of god and his justice mm-hmm. and these other things will be added unto you so the caesar seeks these other things and peter seeks the kingdom of god and his justice and as so long as they're aligned with each other um then then both ends can be realized another point that you bring up in the book that i i think is honestly worth considering is post fall can the state bring a man to his to the inproportion to his nature um you know let's say that god hadn't you know, revealed that that would be the beatific vision without the sacraments. So without the church in that respect, without the healing of grace, would the state be able to lead a man just to that natural fulfillment? Absolutely not, because um, uh, the um, a man suspects, as soon as he attains the age of reason, man suspects, and if he's ever uh, given habitual grace uh, through faith and or baptism, he knows that his end is infinite and supernatural and that means from that moment onwards he knows what augustine mentioned you know you you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you so man uh without the sacraments and the gospel and without the the uh the authority of the church man's heart is is frozen in restlessness as it were and that restlessness renders it impossible him to rest in a good proportionate to his nature in fact augustine said that that is the source of the desire of the uh the pagan state to conquer all other lands and all other cities Hmm. and subject them to its rule because it's consumed by the desire for the infinite and it doesn't have the means for attaining it Hmm. so it just tries to gobble up as much of the finite as it possibly can and so it's this desperate libido dominandi Hmm. the 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 lust to dominate which which turns the uh turns the state separated from divine revelation into the brigandage the latrocinium um so so uh Augustine says he takes, uh, interestingly, Cicero, he, he shows that it's for natural reason, he takes Cicero's definition of a, of a true republic, which is uh, a multitude united in association by a community of interest and a common sense of right. And he says that that can only really exist when that multitude is uh, possessed of the means of worshipping God as he has appointed, because there can't be any, because if justice, use, common sense of right, the word is use in Latin, from which we get justitia, the habit of use, the constant and perpetual desire to render unto each one that which is his due, mm. the classical definition of justice. So the one to whom the most is due before and above everyone else is God. And so if you don't worship God in the manner he's appointed, you're not truly a republic. He says there is, Augustine says there is no republic save, there is no justice save in that republic whose founder and ruler mm-hmm. is Christ. And he says, so without divine revelation, the the state becomes something else. It becomes uh, a multitude of brigands united in association by their a common agreement on the object of their brigandage and the division of the loot. Um, uh, so yeah, so the, yeah. it becomes a criminal enterprise determined to oppress and consume all the goods of the earth and all the people on the earth. Um, so in a way, the sort of 
libertarian conception of the state as a sort of quasi-criminal <laughs> enterprise is rejected by the church's teaching as a true definition of the state, but it's accepted uh, by the church as a definition of the state when separated from moral truth and supernatural revelation. Uh, Doc, and that is a, that's a great segue to a comment. I wanted to hear your thoughts on here. This comes from Father Mike Schmidt in his interview with the New York Times. Uh, they asked him about this relationship that we're speaking to here. And he said, quote, when it comes to the pulpit, whenever it comes to an issue, I merely present principles, never policy. I don't know if I've ever advocated a policy. Instead, it's let's present principles and trusting people and trusting people apply them as best we can, end quote. So, Doc, would you say that for the priests and the bishops, as we're speaking to this relationship between church and state, would you say that for them to remain silent on policy and just stick with preaching principles, as Father Mike suggests, that that's, that's in line with what we've spoken of thus far? Yes, uh, yes, that is right. I mean, uh, you could have a policy which was intrinsically wicked, that could never under any circumstances be legitimate. You know, to take a non-current controversial one, you know, you know, someone wants to pass a law to, to execute all left-handed people or mm-hmm. whatever it might happen to be, in which case it would be uh, not only appropriate but incumbent upon the hierarchy of the church to condemn such a policy. Mm-hmm. But um, if there is a policy which could in principle be legitimate, um, uh, depending on the circumstances, uh, it's incumbent on the, the hierarchy of the church to preach as to what the the correct circumstances would be for the implementation of such a policy, but not to say whether they actually obtain in the here and now, mm-hmm. um, because that is a judgment proper to the laity. So, um, and it, that is in a way the that would be like Peter chopping off Malchus's ear. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's not the judgment proper to the hierarchy. Um, uh, that so um, Pius the Eleventh treats of this in Quadragesimo Anno, one of his social encyclicals. He says, certainly the Church was not given the commission to guide men to an only fleeting and perishable happiness, but to that which is eternal. Indeed, the Church holds that it is unlawful for her to mix without cause in these temporal concerns. However, she can in no wise renounce the duty God entrusted to her to interpose her authority, not, of course, in matters of technique, for which she is neither suitably equipped nor endowed by office, but in all things which are connected to the moral law. Mm -hmm. So those blatantly obvious, contrary to natural law policies, the bishops and priests would would speak to immediately, as we were talking about the Ten Commandments on... Uh, moral relativism, those things, those those negative precepts that always obtain, that are always, you know, to, to murder the innocent, that's always going to be wrong. And so, I mean, I, the, what comes to mind for me, of course, is abortion, uh, to, to kill an yes. innocent child. Uh, the, here we have a policy that the priests and bishops would speak to uh, because it's always and everywhere wrong. The, yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, so, for example, you could say that... Um, uh, a, a member of the hierarchy could say that for the death penalty, to take a controversial example, to be illegitimately employed, the offence against which it was employed would have to be sufficiently grave to merit so terrible a punishment. Mm-hmm. And uh, the social circumstances would have to be such that the offence in question threatened 
the continued existence of the rule of law unless it was deterred by the penalty of death. Um, and so to employ it when both of those conditions have not been fulfilled would be morally wrong. Hmm. But whether or not uh, the first condition is fulfilled is an abstract and universal question, mm-hmm. which the hierarchy of the church can preach on authoritatively. But uh, whether the second condition is fulfilled is a question proper to the laity, about which uh, a prelate would only be expressing an opinion yep. as in a private capacity. Whereas in regard to killing an innocent human child because uh, its existence was considered too burdensome to others or to itself, um, that could never possibly be correct, and therefore that can be denounced as a legislative act in any circumstances. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a great example. Adaka, a final objection among the, the many uh, we could uh, address, and then I have uh, one other question, but uh, I think it's worth bringing up because I've heard it before, personally. I'm surely going to hear it again, and that is, uh, well, whether... This kind of relationship where, you know, the state is receiving uh, revelation by which it knows the ultimate beatific end of man, uh, it's receiving in that way, it's receiving some of its, um, you know, moral guidance. It's going to, you know, receive direction toward grace, the grace that's going to come through the sacrament so that man uh, can fulfill the laws, the laws of nature, and then those are revealed to him by divine law. whether it's right or wrong, someone might say, either way, this this relationship without the hard distinction between church and state, it just it's not American. Which I'm glad that you've you've already spoken to that. You quote George <laughs> of Washington, and I'm gonna I'm gonna quote uh, another. Well, what's normally quoted in favor of this objection is the First Amendment. Uh, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Yet at the same time, as you've spoken to George Washington, I'm going to speak about John Adams here. Uh, He says in his 1798 letter, quote, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other, end quote. So what I think he means is that the church could be left out of the state. Maybe that's what he was thinking, these these founding fathers, uh, those, those first presidents. Uh, could be left out of the state constitution provided it remained in the statesmen. I think that's what they were banking on, provided it remained in the statesmen and in the hearts of the citizens. And in his words are prophetic, as he says, this government is wholly inadequate uh, for a non-religious, a non-moral people in that the more secular our statesmen, our, our citizens become, the more strained society seems to be like something that's being torn uh, in different pieces. So do you, do you think this is at all because of that hard separation that between the church and the state that we have here? Yes, I mean, I think there is a problem, which is that, I mean, it's natural for a Protestant Um, and Adams was a Unitarian, um, Washington was an Anglican. It's natural for a Protestant to think that that you can't reasonably have uh, divine revelation be the highest principle of public policy and public law because there is no um, publicly established authority to make final divinely guaranteed 
decisions as to what is the true interpretation of divine revelation. That's the essence of Protestantism, to suppose that. But the problem is that that undermines, um, and of course, but Adams of Washington were, were, were you know, um, naturally very just men, and, and they saw that it was necessary to the preservation of the civil order that men be religious and and uh, and that they be moral. Um, and so, as you say, they hoped that it remained in the hearts of the statesmen, if, even if it even if it, they felt it couldn't be enshrined in the state itself. Mm-hmm. The problem with this is that if it were that if it were true that which of course it isn't because god founded uh the catholic church in order to be the public tribunal which determines the true and false interpretation of divine revelation and if he hadn't done so it would render absurd the very idea of divine revelation itself because mm-hmm. what's the point of revealing the truths necessary for the salvation of the entire human race and then making it impossible to determine what they are yeah uh, right um, Absolutely. so 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 denying the authority of the church ultimately leads to rendering absurd the concept of divine revelation and drives people into atheism because it doesn't make sense for god to exist and be infinitely just as we know by reason he is and then require of us that we worship him in the manner he has appointed and then fail to appoint any manner by which we might worship him or at least fail to provide the means by which we could know Hmm. what the appointed man of worship is so 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 the logic of that position begins to drive men towards atheism and in fact alexi de tocqueville in his famous work democracy in america he he prophesied that the constitutional form of the united states was such that it would naturally drive its citizens towards atheism or catholicism because nothing else really fitted with the uh, the kind of society that those institutions propagate now, um, of course, the Constitution of the United States is not, and I, I hate to, to say this to <laughs> oh, here it comes. Of country, yeah, disclaimer. It's not divine is not divinely revealed. Oh sure. <laughs> and it's not guaranteed. We can forgive uh, you for mor- that. Morally perfect. Um but I, I don't think as such as it happens, there is a problem uh, per se with the with the Constitution of the United States in this respect. All it does is prevent Congress from passing any law regarding the establishment of a religion or impeding the free exercise thereof. Mm -hmm. It doesn't prevent, in its original text, and the meaning of that text, because many of the states at the time which it was passed in for many years afterwards were confessional states of one sort or another. It doesn't prevent the individual states from, from having established religions, and it doesn't prevent the United States having established religion. It just prevents... Congress establishing a religion for the United States, it would be fine for the people uh, and Congress and the president together through a uh, through a um, and the states uh, through a constitutional amendment to do so. It's just it can't be done by a passing majority uh, in Congress and, and the consent of the president. It would require much more fundamental established consensus in the united states yeah. in order to do that it would need the necessary mechanisms for a constitutional amendment and that seems perfectly appropriate because it is absolutely forbidden to impose uh, the catholic faith on anyone by force um who who is on who is not a christian not baptized and um it is also forbidden to uh by extension to essentially threatened to deprive someone of temporal goods in order to induce their conversion. 
So to try sure. and impose the faith through uh, depriving a people of, or a large number of a people of their full participation in the civil order um, would be a, a, an unworthy, a concealed form of coercive conversion. And therefore, in fact, the mechanism by which one day the United States of America could be uh, could be consecrated to the true religion mm. in a just fashion, which did no violence to its citizens, um, but was their own decision, is 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 present there in in the structures of the U.S. Constitution. Mm. Now, I'm not suggesting that that was at all envisaged by Adams, the Unitarian, or Washington, yeah. the Anglican, um, but uh, I just mean that um, I just mean that that in the wisdom the framers of the U.S. Constitution. Um, didn't offend against reason and nature in that respect, perhaps in regard to slavery, but not in that <laughs> yeah. respect. <laughs> um, so we we have no consensus, right? There's no there's no consensus at, on religion. We're very very many different opinions. There's no majority in any way of of Catholic opinion. So my last question here, Doc, uh, and just the information thus far has been fantastic. So I'm you know I'm very grateful. I'm sure. Our listeners are as well. What what would you say is is the responsibility then for our current Catholic politicians, our current Catholic voters? Since as and you mentioned this in the book, you know even even if a Catholic would want something as you just uh, mentioned, uh, the consecration of the state to the true religion, it may not always be the right time. And you mentioned some reasons for that. So so right now, what would you say is the responsibility? What is the aim? Of, of our Catholic politicians and then our voters? Well, I think there's two things to bear in mind, perhaps three. One is, um, one is that even though it's an extremely remote possibility, although it wasn't quite so remote at the end of the 50s when the demographic trends looked like they might be going that way, but at this point it's, uh, it's a rather remote possibility of, of, of anything like the, the numbers necessary and the consensus necessary for... for for the kingship of Christ in this republic mm. of the United States of America to obtain, um, uh, it's important that we uphold that that is our, our desire in the sense that that would be morally necessary if the vast majority of, of people in the United States were Catholics. Um, and we want everyone in the United States to be Catholics because we want everyone to be saved and mm -hmm. we want to preach the gospel to everyone. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's important because if we deny that truth, we obscure essential truths about the nature of the gospel. Um, when um, when uh, our Lord appeared to Ananias to tell him that Saul the persecutor, struck blind and uh, converted, was on his way to be baptized by him, uh, he said, you know, you've got to be joking. This guy's a lunatic. He's here to kill me. And he said, no, he is my vessel of election uh, to um, to bring the uh, the truths of salvation, uh, to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings, right? So it's part of the nature of the gospel that it includes the civil order and not just uh, the individual and the family. Uh, our Lord says on the mountain in Galilee, uh, make disciples of all nations. Now, obviously, that means people of every nationality, but it also means of the nations themselves as as natural realities. 
And uh, it wants you let go of that. It's not the most important of all truths in, in, in the gospel, but it, it is a truth within the gospel. And once you let go of it, you start to suggest implicitly that uh, that man isn't naturally a social animal, that there isn't a public tribunal which guarantees the objective possibility of professing the true faith without error. So you, you essentially start to insinuate Protestantism hmm. uh, into Catholic doctrine, and that renders Catholic doctrine incoherent, and it starts to dissolve um, uh, the um, dissolve the Church as a as a vital force um, uh, tending towards the salvation of the society in which it's operating. So it's very dangerous to let go of that. That's the first thing. The second thing, in regard to um, regard to what we do in our civic duties in in a context in which the, the gospel is not established um uh is that um two things there's two things to consider there one is that um because man is a social and political animal because the origin of the state and its authority lies in god that means that when we um vote for a politician um uh we are um we are voting we're exercising divine power um uh we we've been we are by the grace of god just as much as as my sovereign charles the third says on his coins charles by the grace of god hmm. uh king and defender of the faith we are we are voters by the grace of god when we go and put our our our, our, our ballots into the ballot box or or punch the hole in the thing, whatever you do in the states, um, and um, uh, and um, and so that has an important impact. the The congressman or the senator or whoever we're voting for is not our plenipotentiary delegate. He is not our ambassador. Yeah. Everything that he does is not done by us. We are picking the best possible candidate for a job on behalf of the boss, who is God. Hmm. He's asked us to form the search committee. For the job of congressman, senator, president, and we are we're trying to get the best possible person for that job, and and it's and so when we vote for the politician, we're voting for the least terrible <laughs> of the politicians on the ballot who has a decent chance of winning. Mm. Um, uh, and then if he does wicked things, he's responsible for doing those wicked things, not us. Good distinction. Um, uh, so we don't have to. So if you've got a pro-abortion politician. Who's got? Who's one of the two people with a chance of winning, and the other one is pro euthanasia, pro gay marriage, pro abortion, and pro killing all left-handed people. Then it's okay to vote for the pro abortion politician, mm -hmm. who isn't in favour of euthanasia, gay marriage, and killing all left-handed people, mm -hmm. in order to you know reduce the number, the body count of the <laughs> terrible politicians when they get into power. So that's that's quite important. Um, and people get terribly they they end they end up voting for some some somebody who has absolutely no chance of winning because they think they can only vote for somebody or not voting at all because they think they can only vote for someone who has an absolutely spotless yeah. manifesto but that's not actually true mm. that's 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 mingling contractualist modern conception of the state with a catholic conscience and getting silly mm. results um and then the um the uh the third point is um is to do with the fact that while it's true that um uh um the mechanisms are there by which um a just order can be brought about at the ballot box in the united states and other 
analogous modern polities um, and that's great and that allows us to just preach the gospel and do our civic duty uh, we have to remember that every polity is either subject to uh, Christ or it is in some degree in the power of the evil one there is an ultimately a stark binary um, situation that Augustine describes in, in his great work The City of God um, and so we have to bear in mind that, that, that there is it's not just a, we're not just living on a level, level playing field we are fighting in over battlefield between Christ and Satan for the souls of all of our fellow citizens and every other human being in the world and also for their kings as it were um, and this is brilliantly expressed in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2244, uh, where it says, every institution is inspired at least implicitly by a vision of man and his destiny from which it derives the point of reference for its judgment, its hierarchy of values, its line of conduct. Most societies have formed their institutions in the recognition of a certain preeminence of man over things. Only the divinely revealed religion has clearly recognized man's origin and destiny in God, the creator and redeemer. The church invites political authorities to measure their judgments and decisions against this inspired truth about God and man. Societies not recognizing this vision or rejecting it in the name of their independence from God are brought to seek their criteria and goal in themselves or to borrow them from some ideology since they do not admit that one can defend an objective criterion of good and evil they arrogate to themselves an explicit or implicit totalitarian power over man and his destiny as history shows and it's a tremendously important teaching of the catechism and and you see that battle constantly going on in every country in the world uh, insofar as the gospel is being pulled towards the gospel um, uh, it, it, it's being made human, it's being made a fitting place for man redeemed and saved by Christ to live. Insofar as it's drifting away from the gospel, it's turning into that Leviathan, that, that, that terrible monster, the beast to which the dragon delegates all its authority in, in Revelation chapter 13, mm -hmm. and which demands that its subjects worship it. That's just terrifying. Spiritual warfare at the national level uh, lord give us the grace um to bring your gospel to all nations particularly our very own thank you doc i look forward to taking on more topics uh would you bring up in your book just war economics the various better or worse forms of government and for those listening if you want a crash course in catholic political philosophy dr Fimster's book is titled integralism co-authored by father thomas crean and you can find it on amazon this is Think Catholic. My name is Austin Habish, along with Dr. Alan Fimister, and thanks again for joining us. <laughs>